So this is part two of our sermon series. And throughout this series, we will look at a number of the ailments and infections that are associated with sin. We'll look at hate, fear, hopelessness, false views of God's character, uh, feeling unloved, and a list of numerous isms. That's the reality of living in a sinful world. That's the bad news. But fear not, dear friends, the good news is this. We will look at these ailments and infections caused by sin, but our main focus will be on the truth that Jesus is the cure. Jesus is the cure. And our sermon today is a question. The sermon today is entitled, What Are We So Afraid Of? What are we so afraid of? Fear is a natural part of life in this world. And there are perfectly rational fears in our lives. Being afraid of certain things is actually conducive to a healthy and happy life. For instance, I'm scared to go dribble a basketball in the middle of the interstate. I'm scared to put my hand on the stove eye when it's red hot, right? I I mean, I think that we can all agree here that those type of fears are very rational and they are helpful if we want to live in a happy and safe life. But there are other types of fears too. A phobia is an irrational fear of something that's unlikely to cause harm. And the word itself comes from the Greek word phobos, or the verb form phobeo, which means fear or horror. Hydrophobia, for example, translates to the fear of water. When someone has a phobia, they experience intense fear of that thing, that certain object or situation. And phobias are different from regular fears because they cause significant distress, which possibly interfere with daily life, with work, with school. People with phobias actively avoid the phobic object or situation, or they might endure it, but with intense fear and anxiety. Phobias are a type of anxiety disorder, and anxiety disorders are very common. It's, they, they are estimated to affect about 30% of U.S. adults at some time in their lives. That's about one, one in three. In the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the fifth edition, the DSM-5, for those of you in the know, The American Psychiatric Association outlines several of the most common phobias. Agoraphobia, a fear of places or situations that trigger fear or helplessness, is singled out as a particularly common fear with its own unique diagnosis. Social phobias, which are fears associated with social Situations are also singled out with a unique diagnosis. And one of the strongest phobias 
known to current humanity is the fear of public speaking. (laughs) Can anybody relate to that? (laughs) You know, it's one of the few fears that when people are interviewed and asked questions about it, it's one of the few fears that people say, I would rather die than get up in front of a bunch of people and start talking. Luckily, I don't have that fear. (laughs) Phobias come in all shapes and sizes. And because there are an infinite number of objects and situations, the list of specific phobias is quite long. And according, once again, to the DSM, specific phobias typically fall into five general categories. These categories are fears related to animals. So think spiders, dogs, insects. Maybe snakes for some of y'all. Fears related to the natural environment. So heights, thunder, darkness. I have a fear of heights, and it's not always rational. Fears related to blood, injury, or medical issues. So those of you that are scared of needles or injections, broken bones, falls. Fears related to specific situations like flying, riding an elevator, or driving. And then there's another category that's simply called other. It involves things like choking, loud noises, drowning. These five categories encompass an infinite number of specific objects and situations. Did you know that there is actually a fear of fears? A fear of fears. It's called phobophobia. Phobophobia. And this is actually more common than you might think. Phobias also vary based on cultural experiences, gender, and age. Maybe you can think back to a fear that you had when you were a child that you no longer have anymore. Maybe you felt really brave in certain situations as a child, and now you find yourself trembling with fear in those same situations. A 1998 survey of more than 8,000 respondents published in the British Journal of Psychiatry, found that some of the most common phobias include acrophobia, which is the fear of heights, aerophobia, the fear of flying, arachnophobia, fear of spiders, astrophobia, fear of thunder and lightning, autophobia, fear of being alone, claustrophobia, fear of confined or crowded spaces, hemophobia, fear of blood, hydrophobia, fear of water, ophidiophobia, which is the fear of snakes, And zoophobia is just the general fear of animals. Now, I share all of this to highlight the fact that escapable aspect of human beings. It's just part of our nature living in this sinful world. But what about for the Christian? Are there maybe theological phobias? Are there fears when it comes specifically to the Christian walk and associated with it? The word phobeo or phobos appears 140 times just in the New Testament. What I have found particularly interesting, though, is that the terms are used quite consistently within the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But even stranger is the fact that no matter what Jesus did, people were scared of him. What? Really? Come on, pastor. Yes, you heard me right. Let me, let me explain. 
When Jesus walked on water, the disciples were afraid. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, it is a ghost. And they cried out for fear. When Jesus calmed the storm and the waves, the disciples were also afraid. And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? When Jesus healed a paralyzed man, the people were afraid. And they were all amazed and they glorified God and were filled with fear, saying, we have seen strange things today. When Jesus raised the widow's son from the dead, the people were afraid. Then fear came upon them, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen up among us, and God has visited his people. When Jesus cast the demons, called legion, out of the demon-possessed man, the people of the town were afraid. Then the whole multitude of the surrounding region of the Gadarenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. And he got into the boat and returned. Now, you may have picked up on something in all of these cases. In none of these instances that we just looked at was Jesus doing anything that we would associate with being scary or horrifying. So that begs the question, If Jesus was doing good, why were people so afraid? Why would Jesus doing something nice, good, and even life-giving cause people to shake with fear? Now, this next statement will come as no surprise. Change is hard. (laughs) Right? You guys are feeling this on a very intimate level at this point, right? Getting ready to move. Change is hard. And all of these stories that I just shared from Jesus's ministry show beyond a shadow of a doubt that he has the desire and the ability to call for and to make serious changes. Christ's power and authority shine through in all of his words and actions. But he took things one step further by offering people the choice to allow him to do those things in their lives too. People always had a choice in the matter in those days, and I believe that we still have a choice in the matter today as Christians in the 21st century. Jesus asked questions and even gave commands, but he's a gentleman. And the ability to choose to follow or ignore his words was always left up to the person that he was talking to. But what Jesus called for was change. And as we've seen and experienced in our own lives, change is hard. John 5, 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more lest a worse thing come upon you. Sin no more was a call to change, right? John 8, 11, she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Once again, we see Jesus extending love and forgiveness, but it was followed by an invitation to change. 
Matthew 4.19, then he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. When he met the disciples, they were working hard, laboring to catch fish in order to feed their families and make ends meet. The invitation, follow me, was an invitation to change. Matthew 16, 24, then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Maybe you've experienced this. Following Jesus isn't always easy. Following Jesus isn't always easy. And a world so full of hatred, apathy, and selfishness, Jesus calls us to forgive, to love, and to humble ourselves. In a world and a culture so full of violence, Jesus has called us to non-violence. This does not come naturally, and it takes a willingness to change. So Jesus did amazing and good things, but it illustrated his mighty power to bring about big changes in people's lives and was usually followed up by an invitation to allow that change. We can see this. We can know it. Yet I find that the majority of Christians that I speak with are still battling many of the same fears. And I believe this all boils down to a simple misunderstanding or a bit of confusion. Confusion leads to fear. Confusion leads to fear. As I speak with Christians in person and online, as I read their literature or listen to their interviews, as I hear their theology come through in their sermons, it is consistently apparent to me that we Christians are utterly confused when it comes to issues of salvation and sanctification. Often we confuse the two as if they were the same thing. And this confusion leads to fear to fear. And the fear exists with conservative Christians and liberal Christians. Now, I, I don't think that labels are always helpful, but I think you know what I mean. This isn't just a, 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 a left-leaning problem or a right-leaning problem. This is an us as humans, as Christians problem. Let's be clear. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, which Matthew touched on this morning as well, it states, for by grace... You have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. God's grace goes against everything that secular society wants to teach us. The world tells us that we must earn what we have and keep. However, when we align our thinking to our creator's thinking, we discover that he earned it, and he will keep it. He will do this for us. Speaking of the hope we have in Christ's resurrection, 1 Peter 1, 4 and 5 says this, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Our faith may waver in times of spiritual hardship, but the hope of our salvation will not. 
God guards our salvation with his power. And with this same strength, he holds us securely. We are his. As Jesus says in John 10, 28, and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Our salvation relies on his goodness and perfection, not our own. There is nothing we can do or say or add or remove from our lives in order to gain God's love or salvation. It is a gift from God called grace that we believe in faith. Anything more or less is not good news. It is legalism. It is merely behavioral modification. It is fruitless and hopeless. It is what Paul calls on a few occasions another gospel. This is the type of confusion many of my more conservative-leaning Christian friends struggle with, and it leads to fear. Fear of not being good enough. The fear of never being truly accepted by God. The fear that you haven't given quite enough. My dear Christian friends on the other side of the aisle, though, they have their struggles and confusions too. Namely, when it comes to understanding sanctification. Sanctification is a lifelong process. Our salvation is a one time event. Our sanctification, on the other hand, is a moment-by-moment process that does not end until we leave this earth or we fall asleep while we're on it. Paul reminds us in Philippians 1.6 that he, Jesus, who has begun a good work in us, will continue working on us until the second coming. He doesn't give up. From the moment we receive God's gift of salvation, he begins to work in our lives through his Holy Spirit to make us more like Jesus. And although we are called to cooperate through obedience to his instructions and commands, it is his work through us, not ours. We we can't take credit for it. For years, as God revealed the flaws in my own heart, I mistook it as a sign that my foundation or maybe my blueprints were faulty. But as the builder of, the, of our lives, God alone holds the plans and the construction schedule. He also holds the deeds. When the product is finally finished on the day of Christ's return, he will rightfully receive the credit. And he isn't working on me in order to save me. He's already done that. He's already done that. This has much more to do with his command to love one another and to represent him in a positive light. There are changes we may need to make. It has nothing to do with salvation, but everything to do with trusting God to know what is best for us and our witness for him. So this is the type of confusion many of my more liberal-leaning Christian friends struggle with, and it also leads to fear. I've experienced both sets of this. 
The fear that working toward positive changes is an unbelief in the one-time gift of salvation. Or that behavioral modification is always a form of legalism. You see, there are ditches on both sides. Ditches on both sides, and our goal is hopefully to stay out of the ditches. Salvation and sanctification are not the problems. Confusing them as one and the same is the issue. And that confusion once again leads to fear. We often let fear be the motivation of our actions, and fear is not a good or healthy motivator. There are some listening today that need to hear and understand the truth concerning salvation. You need to accept God's free gift and rest in the truth that you are saved right now in this very moment. If you have accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then you are safe in the hands of God and no one or no thing can, as Jesus said, snatch you out of his hands. There is nothing you must do in order to earn it. Jesus already did that work. Or maybe there are some here who need to accept the truth about sanctification. That while Paul did clearly teach that our salvation was assured through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, that doesn't mean we stop striving to become more like Christ and better representations of his character. We don't make changes to be saved but because we are saved and we believe that God has our best interest at heart. So, dear friends, let me leave you with a few words from the mouth of Jesus. Have you grown fearful in your daily Christian walk because you've believed the lie that you must work in order to achieve or hold on to your salvation? This message is for you. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I. Do not be afraid. It is not your job to save yourself. Who's in in charge, though, of holding on to your salvation? Jesus steps in and says, It is I. Don't be afraid. Or maybe you have become paralyzed in the process of sanctification because you're afraid that you might be falling into legalism by making positive changes in your life. This message is for you. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, do not be afraid. You don't have to be stagnant in your Christian walk, paralyzed by fear. Jesus says, Arise. Don't be afraid. Or maybe your fear is a bit different. You're scared because the depths of God's love may be hard to comprehend. The plan he has for your life may seem too good to be true. This message is for you. As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not be afraid, only believe. You don't have to wonder if God loves you. 
You don't have to be fearful wondering why Jesus would choose a wretch like you. Jesus says, just believe. Don't be afraid. So no matter the sin, no matter the struggle, no matter the lie, no matter the doubt, no matter the pain, and no matter the fear, Jesus is the cure. Amen and amen. I hope that you will join us next week as we continue this series and we look at a sermon entitled Humanity's Most Ingested Poison. Humanity's Most Ingested Poison. I'll I'll let you wrestle with that and wonder what that might mean. Until next week, I hope to see you then.